Anyway, it's uh, good to be with you. This morning we are beginning a new summer series, uh, and the summer series is called In Good Company. And uh, this series, what we're looking at is we're trying to think of, okay, what's a good series we can go through for, throughout the summer? And uh, so we, we kind of settled on, we want to study some of the stories of people throughout Scripture. But what we didn't want to do is there's a temptation when you look at stories in Scripture and kind of the, the characters in the Bible, there's a temptation to say, oh, here's the, the heroes of the faith and the people that we need to somehow become like them. And as you really study their stories, there's a lot in their lives that we don't want to become like. But what we do want to do is we don't believe that each of the character in the Bible is the hero of the story. We believe that God is the hero of the story. We believe that scripture is a story of a loving God who's created us and has made us for relationship and wants to work in our lives that we may understand who he is more and trust him more and believe in who he is and his promises. And so as we study these stories, we're going to find people that are just part of the story that you and I are in. In fact, there's this great chapter in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 11 that talks about a lot of these people throughout scripture and it talks about the faith that Abraham had and Isaac and the faith of Moses and it goes on to kind of talk about some of these big characters. And then near the end of the chapter in chapter 11 of Hebrews, it says, oh yeah, and then some people had great faith in God and they were sawn in two. They were thrown into prison. They were stoned to death for their faith. This great chapter of faith took a turn and said, yes, some people with great faith also also never saw the result of their faith. And, And that's kind of how it went. And then at the very beginning of chapter 12, the thought continues, and it says this to all of us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So right after this chapter that mentions all these people throughout scripture, and then some of the obscure men and women that we never heard about, and and how they didn't have such a great end to their great lives of faith, the next thought is, therefore, since we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, therefore, since we are in good company, With a bunch of men and women, just like you and like me, who struggled through this life trying to figure out who God is and what the plans for God had for them, since we're in great company with this with these people, let us run with perseverance. Let us know that the ups and downs of life and the twists and turns aren't the end of the story. And let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. And I love that because the author of your story is not you. I think sometimes we're told and we believe that, hey, we can do and become anything we want to be, just pave your own way. And those are all good graduation speech things to say, are they not? But the truth is, yeah, we do want to, you know, you do have responsibility in the world, but God, Jesus is the author of our faith. He's writing your story. And here's the good part. He's the perfecter of it. He's the one who's working in your lives to shape you and to make you into something new. And so the burden is not on you and your ability to somehow rise above everyone else around you, but Jesus is writing your story. And so this summer, we're going to look at these stories, and we are in good company. We're finding grace for the present in lives from the past. And so that's what we want to do this summer. We're going to start off by looking at a story of a guy named Jacob. Now, his story covers seven chapters, so I want to invite you to open to the book of Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to read all seven chapters and be done by the evening service. So, um, (laughs) 
I'm going to actually just talk you through his story. But as you find your way there, join me as we pray. God, we ask now that in this place there's people who come, some maybe with some great burden, some with uh, feeling shame. Lord, some are here today with great rejoicing in their hearts and joy. Lord, meet us where we're at. And in all of this, Lord, we want to see how we're in good company with thousands of years of people of faith. And Lord, how through it all, you are the hero. You are the author. You're the perfecter of our faith in our lives. So teach us now. Meet us. Help us hear what we need to hear today. In your name, amen. All right, so we are in uh, Genesis chapter 25. And as I said, I'm going to move rather quickly through a lot of Jacob's life because there's a lot that happens, but I want to get to one part towards the end, which I think is the most significant. But so I'm going to kind of speed through this. If you've never heard the story, I want to challenge you this week to read those seven chapters and you'll, you'll get acquainted with it a little bit more. And you'll already have heard some of this, so you won't scratch your head quite as much if you, when you read it later because there's some weird twists and turns here. But so Jacob's life started, and it starts with a promise that was given about his life. So promise number one in Jacob's life, we find in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, and this was spoken to his mother because Jacob was in the womb, and it says, two nations are in your womb, two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So the first promise in Jacob's life is that He's a twin, and whichever one comes out second actually is going to be the one who will rise up over the other one. So now into his childhood. The very next thing that we find happen, this is a part of his childhood now, is it says this in chapter 25, verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Red in a hairy cloak. Isn't that just a beautiful description? Any of you who think when your baby's first born, you're like, oh, he's so cute. Like, no, he's not. Um, it was just born. It's not cute when it's just born. Um, but yeah, so he comes out like uh, with a hairy cloak, which I should have named one of my kids Esau. I won't tell you which one, but came out very similar. <laughs> Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was Jacob. So the other one was born, and his hand was grasping towards Esau's heel. Now, Jacob, Yaakov, is a Hebrew word which sounds roughly like heel. It's not a direct translation, but then it became an idiom to mean uh, to trip someone up or to grab at their heel or to deceive. So essentially, his name is Deceiver. Now, if you ever think about like what a name can mean for you, and if someone gives you a name and what that, like could you imagine your whole life your name is Deceiver? Or like you named a kid Liar? Like, hey Liar, get in here. Tell me what happened to the lamp. <laughs> you know, hey Liar, why didn't you do your homework? I mean, just think of just that name being spoken over you your whole life, Deceiver, Deceiver. So he was born, and so, but the first promise was for the second one. And Jacob comes out as the second child. So there's this promise that he's living with already. Now, imagine that. You're called deceiver, but you've also been told about a promise that's been spoken to you. A promise that said that you will rise up over your older, your older brother. So now we find his life. The first event we see is he steals the birthright from his brother. A birthright in their culture was if you had two sons, for example, uh, the inheritance was given or promised to the sons and each would have 
uh, you, if you had two sons, you'd have three portions of the inheritance. The older son would get two portions, the younger would get one. If you had three sons, there would be four portions, just so the older always gets a double portion. That's called the birthright. So in this, we find now Jacob steals or swindles his brother out of his birthright, in other words, out of the extra portion of the inheritance. And how does he do it? It says that Jacob was one who dwelled in tents and Esau was like a great hunter. Now, so Esau is kind of like the, he had the shotgun on his lifted Ford truck and he was like hanging out in the desert and you know, that's Esau, that, kind of that guy. Now it says Jacob dwells in tents. Please don't misunderstand that and think like Jacob was the guy going out getting pedicures and manicures. No offense if you do that, guys, but if you, yeah. But that's not how Jacob, I'm, I'm moving on. So, um, but it said he dwells in tents. Essentially, that's a way of saying he was a shepherd. That was his job in the farm. So he would travel with the sheep, with the flocks, and set up a tent wherever they were. We find Jacob cooking. That's not unusual in their culture either. Um, that men and women both would cook, especially the shepherds would definitely know how to prepare meals. So what we have here is in his childhood, the very first story uh, after their birth is that Jacob is cooking a red lentil stew. And his brother Esau comes in and says, hey, can I have some of that? I'm hungry. Can you give me some of that stew? I know you make the best. And Jacob says, I'll give you some, but you have to sell me your birthright. Give me your extra portion of your inheritance. So in verse 31 of chapter 25, Jacob says, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is my birthright to me. So if you've ever been someone to say like, I'm starving to death. I mean, that's what Esau is doing. He's coming in and like, I'm about to die. I need to eat. Some of you, you've heard your kids say this. Some of you, you hear your spouses say this. Some of you, you say this. So you know what? You can relate, right? He's like, I'm so hungry. What do I care about my inheritance? Just give me some of that delicious soup. I wonder how good it really was. Must have been awesome. So Jacob said, swear to me now. So Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. He ate and drank and rose and went on his way, and Esau despised his birthright. He left from there, and he despised that portion of his inheritance. He didn't appreciate it. Next thing we have, so we had birthright stolen. Now we're going to see a stolen blessing in Genesis chapter 27. The blessing of the father in their culture, often the older son would receive a blessing from the father. This was a ceremonial blessing. The legal arrangement for inheritance already happened, So that's different. This is a ceremonial blessing that would be spoken out loud by a father over usually the eldest son. And it wasn't necessarily binding like God had to make it happen, but the people who heard it understood it to be a binding agreement, couldn't be taken back. And those, to the best of your ability to make it happen, would make it happen. So here's the deal. The dad, Isaac, told his son Esau, hey, go out and cook, go catch some wild game, whatever that is, cook it, bring it into me, and then I'll give you the blessing. It was a ceremonial meal. And this was the arrangement. Now, we also know through these chapters that it was described that Isaac, the father, loved Esau more than Jacob. So, one, you have the name deceiver. Two, you know your dad likes your brother more than you. Can you see how modern day psychology would say there might be an issue brewing here in his life? So he has some daddy issues too. Now, he hears that the ceremony is, his mom actually hears that the ceremony is going to take place to bring a blessing on his older father, the ceremonial blessing. So she says, 
we're going to trick him because da- his dad was blind, by the way. Important point in this. He says, Jacob, you go take some of the choice goats from the flock that you're watching over. Bring it to me. The mom says this. I will cook it. I know what your dad likes, so I'll make it just the way he likes it. Bring it into him. Tell him you're Esau, and he'll bless you instead of your brother. Jacob says, well, my brother's hairy. I'm smooth-skinned. <laughs> That's not going to work. And she says, no, don't worry about it. We're going to put some goat skin on your arms, and we're going to put your brother's clothes on you. They'll smell like your brother, and you'll feel like your brother. That's enough. So he says, okay, let's do it. So Jacob gets some, they, they make a meal. He brings it in and says, hey, dad, I'm back. I'm here to receive your blessing. And he says, who is that? He says, it's Esau, your son. And his dad said, you don't sound like Esau. How did you get this done so quickly? He said, well, I am, I, <clears throat> I am Esau. <laughs> and God blessed the hunt. And now I'm coming back early. And he said, come here so I can feel you. And he felt his arms. And scripture says, when he smelled his brother's clothes, he breathed it in and went, ah, the smell of the fields. (laughs) Now, I have three boys. And um, there's been very few times when I could distinguish them by their smell and I appreciated it. So I, I, I can't say that culturally I totally relate to this. But there's times I could maybe determine, oh, the smell of your shoes, so great to have you here. You know, let me give you a blessing. I don't know. But, but that tricked him enough. He put on the, the, the garments of Esau, the hair of a goat skin, and the dad thinks that Jacob now is Esau and says, okay, I'm going to speak a blessing over you. In verse 28 of Genesis 27, he says, may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let the people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So Jacob receives this blessing from his father. Moments later, we see his brother Esau comes in and says, Dad, I'm back to receive the blessing. He says, oh no, I already gave the blessing to your brother, the deceiver. He tricked me again. And Esau says, he stole my birthright from me. Now he stole my blessing from me. There's only one thing left to do. I'm going to kill that guy. (laughs) And I've seen my brother when I like took something out of his room when I was growing up. Felt kind of similar, but you know, he didn't, he wasn't a good hunter like this guy is. So, So what do we do now? Jacob, now we go into part two of his life. He leaves and he goes to his mother's family that's outside of the land of Israel And he's a single guy now, and we see him now enter adulthood, and it begins with promise number two. So promise number two we find in Genesis chapter 28, verse 13. Jacob is sleeping on his journey out as he's fleeing from his brother Esau because his brother wants to kill him. And this is the promise God gives to Jacob. He says, I am the Lord, God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. Which, by the way, I want you to notice that. If you read this story on your own, to this point, God is, Jacob never refers to God as his own. And God tells him, I'm the God of your father and your grandfather. Because Jacob hasn't claimed God to be his own yet. So he says, I am the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. This land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. 
And you will spread out to the west and the east, the north and the south, and in you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised. Now, if you receive that promise from God, how would that shape your life? I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have many descendants. What we find now is Jacob enters into adulthood. He starts to try to make this promise his own. He tries to take it into his own hands. And now the deceiver gets deceived. For the next 20 years of his life, the story is just filled with deception. And we can't get into it today. But he meets a gal. He wants to marry her. The price of the dowry is seven years of hard labor. He says, I'd be happy to work seven years for her. He works seven years for her on the wedding night. They get married. He wakes up in the morning. It's her older sister, not the one he meant to marry. That's called making a mistake right there, right? I mean, I don't know what that's like to wake up in the morning to look over and go, whoa. (laughs) You need better lighting in these tents. (laughs) So he goes to his father-in-law who deceived him. And he says, that's not the woman we agreed on. And he said, no, culturally, it's not fair for the younger one to get married first. So sorry, you got the older one. But if you want to work seven more years, you can have the younger one too. So Jacob works seven more years. He now has two wives and they want to have kids and they go through a series of times of some of them are barren. They want to, they're now competing with Jacob over having more kids. Again, this is not Christian morals, by the way, this story. So don't, don't go implement this. When one of them becomes barren and she says, sees the other one having kids, she says, here, just have my, my uh, maid and you can have kids with her. And Jacob, being a, a guy, is just like, oh, okay. And so <laughs> we find them competing back and forth with one another. And all of a sudden now he has 12 sons and we have no idea how many daughters. Jacob's just doing his thing. My wife told me to do this, I guess. And we find that he is saying, if God said I'm going to have a lot of descendants, maybe this is how I'm going to do it. And then we find him deceiving. So he builds his family. Then he builds his, through work. We find that he uses deception to build his flocks and he gets bigger and bigger flocks. He uses essentially selective breeding to, uh, his payment was all the lambs and the sheep that had stripes or spots. And so he bred them with the stronger and and the weaker flocks He bred for his father-in-law, and so basically he becomes very strong and mighty and powerful. Now, let's get to the point where he leaves. It's been 20 years. He's wealthy. He has a big family. He wants to go back to the land that God promised he'd return to. So that's where we want to get to. But when he's leaving, he says, I wonder if my brother Esau still is upset about that birthright and blessing thing. (laughs) I wonder if he's going to still, you know, he couldn't possibly still be mad. But actually, Jacob was terrified. And as he goes, he actually divides up. He sends a messenger on ahead and says, find out what my brother Esau's doing these days. Tell him that I'm on my way, but we're going to bring him gifts and blessings. And the messengers come back and say, Jacob, we found your brother Esau. He's coming out to meet you. Good news. And he's bringing 400 skilled fighters with him. (laughs) So that's where we are now. 20 years Jacob fears for his life. His whole life has been filled with deception. The deceiver has been deceiving people. He's been getting deceived by others. The story is just this twist and turn of deception. And now he's fearful. 
So he divides up his land or his uh, families and says, well, if Esau attacks one of them, at least we have the other one. He sends on gifts after gifts ahead to, to give to his brother Esau. I believe that part of it, we see him give um, tons of camels and cows and goats. I believe that what he's doing is trying to return the birthright he stole. Hey, all that inheritance, what it's worth, I'm going to even give you more. So he gives it, he's sending it on ahead. And on, in Genesis chapter 32 now, we find Jacob with this prayer in verse 9. We see how his life is starting to be shaped. And it says, Jacob got down to pray and he said, Oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Notice again. Oh Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of the deeds of the steadfast love and the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I've crossed the Jordan and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he might come and attack me, the mothers with their children. But you said, God, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. One thing I love about Jacob's prayer here is Jacob's prayer, I I believe, even though he's still struggling with who is this God, is, is a very great model of a prayer. See, notice his prayer is not a transactional prayer. Often we pray in a transaction with God. We'll pray things like, Lord, if only you will forgive me this one last time. It's the last time, Lord, I'm ever going to commit that sin again. Just forgive me. I know your patience is running thin, so forgive me this time, and I won't do that again. Lord, if only you could get me out of this situation Lord, if only you could help me get this job. If only you could do, Lord, if you do that, I will even, I'll, I'll attend church every, every other week. Lord, just I, whatever. And, and we do these kind of transactions with God with our prayers. And notice what Jacob says. He says, God, um, I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling fear. I, I'm scared about what's going to happen. But Lord, remember that thing you said? Remember that promise you gave me? Remember who you are when you said that you were going to protect me? Remember when you said that you had a plan for my family? Lord, I want to claim that promise now. I just want to rest on that knowledge. And instead of making the prayer about what we can offer to God, Jacob makes the prayer all about God, what you offer to me. And not that we're asking God to give, to give, to give to us. He already gives us much. But notice this. When we pray and say, God, I know I've screwed up and this sin keeps popping up in my life time and time and time again. You don't have to say, Lord, if just one more forgiveness, just one more time, you won't ever have to do that again. What if we said, remember on the cross, remember when you said that your work was enough to forgive all my past, present, and future sins. Remember, Lord, the promise that you made that nothing could separate me from your love because of how good you are, not because how good I am. Lord, that's, that's the God I'm praying to right now. I know I'm not worthy. I know I don't deserve it. But Lord, who you are is exactly what I need in this situation. 
Lord, I know that right now I need, remember when you promised your peace that passes all understanding will guard my heart? Lord, right now I'm in a situation. There's a loved one who's struggling. There's a situation I'm facing and Lord, I need your peace. You promised it. And so Jacob appeals to God's character and nature of what God is pouring out, not on what he had, not what Jacob had to offer, but what God offers. I love that model of a prayer. So he prays that prayer. And now we find ourselves in the next part of the, chapter, of the story. He prays and then he has the most bizarre night you could ever have. Have you ever had a sleepless night? You know those nights when just something's going on in your life and you say, I know I should probably be getting rest, but you cannot rest. You're up because your mind is spinning and you're just thinking. So Jacob's having one of those nights. He says, tomorrow I'm going to enter back into Israel and I know I'm going to have to confront my brother. I don't know what's going to go on. That's called a sleepless night. He's coming with 400 skilled hunters. And in verse 24 of chapter 32, if you've never read this before, this one just hits you like, what just happened here? It says, then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. This is why I believe the Bible's real, because if you were writing this story, you would do a little better, better setup for this, you know? There's this, okay, so someone's wrestling with him till daybreak. When he saw, when the man saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of David's, or Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then the, then the man said, let me go, for dawn is breaking. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. This is the first time in scripture Jacob has said his name out loud. We've heard Jacob say, my name's Esau. I'm someone else. We've seen other people trick him, but he's never in scripture said out loud, my name is Yaakov, deceiver, liar. But he says it here. I'm the deceiver. And the man said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, the deceiver, but Israel, for you've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And at, Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it you ask my name? And the man blessed him there. And Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I've seen God face to face and my life has been preserved. They believe that if you would see God face to face that you would die. So in the story, what we find is this is called a theophany or even perhaps a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate Christ. Here's an encounter that Jacob is having, having with God. That's why it says, the sun is coming up. I need to go now. Because he, the belief was as soon as sun comes out and he sees God face to face, he would die. So he has this wrestling match at night with God. And this is in the story that I call the showdown. This wrestling match went on all night. And he didn't prevail. Now, isn't this weird? Jacob's wrestling with God and, and God and says, says when God realized he wasn't going to prevail over Jacob, he touched the socket of his thigh. Now, please understand something here. It's not that Jacob was stronger than God and God was wearing out and saying like, wow, this guy's got a lot more tenacity than I thought. And he's, he's pretty strong. I guess with 12 sons, you got to have some tenacity, right? Notice what happens. He says he touches the socket of his thigh. This is a Hebrew word that isn't punch. It isn't put him in a UFC submission hold. What this is, is he gently touched it and utterly crushed his hip. 
In other words, God's wrestling match, he was saying, Jacob, just know at any moment, I can crush you. I can, I can destroy you, but I'm not going to. I want you to know my power, but I'm going to let you prevail. I kind of think of sometimes when I wrestle with my kids, especially when they're younger, there's times as a dad, you kind of wrestle them down and then you, they get older and you kind of let them hang with you for a while until you really start getting tired. Then you're like, okay, it's over, you know. Now I just remind them of, you remember, you just know. I used to be able to, I can beat you and I, I'm not proving it anymore though. <laughs> God's in a way wrestling with them, with Jacob, and he's letting him for some reason struggle with him, which seems to be the story of Jacob's life. See, Jacob already had a promise spoken over his life. And in this moment, when his hip is touched and Jacob realizes the awesome power of the person he's actually wrestling with, I think he has this moment where he realizes this isn't just some strange theophany that I'm face to face with God. And it says that he wouldn't let him go. He says, please bless me. And he wouldn't let him go until he blessed him. See, I believe that Jacob's entire life, the thing that he was longing for was the blessing of God, and he was looking for it in every other place. He thought he could get that affirmation through having this great inheritance. So he was looking for that in stuff. He wanted the blessing of his father spoken of him, so he stole that. He just, somebody tell me I'm valuable. Somebody speak words of affirmation over my life. When he goes into a foreign land and, and, and builds up his flocks and his family, he's like, does this now make me valuable? Look, look at what I have. And now the night before he has to face his brother, he's realizing maybe none of this is adding up. Maybe none of this is the point. And when he realizes he's face to face with his creator God, who he to this point has still not acknowledged to be his own, so why he's asking his name? Are you the one? Are you that God? He says, the thing I've been longing for is your approval, your affirmation. The creator God who made me, who spoke these promises into my life, who loves me for who I am. That's what I've been longing for. How many of us in here is this resonate? The, things that we, the thing that we need most is the Father God who made you, who loves you, who cares about you, who adopts you as your son and daughter, who speaks life over you. The thing we want most is that, but we try to find it in a lot of different things. We search and try to find it in our wealth, in our value. We try to find it in our careers. We find it in our relationships. All of these things can be good, but they all fall short. And we're going to keep wrestling and wrestling and wrestling if we think we'll find what we need in those things. And Jacob is in the moment saying, maybe what I needed all along is you. So the showdown is with God. For us, the question is, what are you searching for? Where are you searching for affirmation? 
This, just this last week, we hosted here in this room uh, a thing called One Church, and we th- four times a year, there's a bunch of churches from North County. We gather together, usually have different speakers, pray together, worship together, just to encourage the church in North County, and, and we had them here this time, and, and you know, anytime you gather together with a lot of people in your own industry, one of the things that's very common is you kind of wonder, like, where do you measure up? Unless some of you aren't that you guys are much more holy than me and the other pastors in there. But so the one thing is I wonder how big their ministry is. I wonder if they come in here, do they think this room looks great? I wonder if they, they look and say, oh, they have drums, they must have good worship. Or do they, you know, what are, we, what are the things that we think we're measuring up? And we, we can slip into very quickly looking for affirmation in what we've accomplished or how big your church is or how great your facilities are or you want to say like, hey, you should check out our bathrooms. They are awesome. I bet they're better than your bathrooms. And it's so easy to try to find affirmation in these things. Maybe for you, you see a neighbor pull up in a brand new car and you see that and say, how did they get that car? How do they afford? I bet they're going to be in t- tons of debt. I bet that's how. They're probably, probably going to get repoed in the next year. So I, that's, that's just, they're just faking it. I know none of you would ever do this, but I heard some people look for affirmation and things like that. What about social media? What about how many likes did I get on my photos? No one has ever done that, I know. But what if someone did? <laughs> the young people understand, right? <laughs> you look at, I thought that photo was awesome. Why do only 12 people like it? I'm going to repost it. <laughs> You know, tag some more friends, make sure that gets more. Why? We look for affirmation in all these little places and none of those measure up. I love the way Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but get this. But that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. So Paul got to the point in his life where he understood the affirmation we long for, it's always going to fall short when we put it in other temporary things. The affirmation we need is in our loving God, the Father. And when we can get to the point where that's where we find our value and worth. As a parent, it's so hard when your kids, hey, this is graduation season. You know what parents ask each other? Hey, where's your kid going for college next year? You know what was fun for me is my oldest son, he goes to community college. Do you know how many people, when we say he goes to community college, respond like this? That's okay. <laughs> Do you know how many? I'd say about 80%. And I look at all of them, I say, I know it's okay because I paid $1,000 this year for his first year of college. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so funny how sometimes we almost want to create a narrative first. But after community college, he's going to be a big deal. <laughs> Our hearts go there right away. What if he wants to be an electrician, which is a great career, but we're afraid to say it? Why? Because what if I don't look as important as someone else? Oh, it's quiet in here. Why is it so quiet? (laughs) Jacob was longing for these things in the wrong place. Now the rest of his story. We're almost done. Chapter 33. He limps over the Jordan River. He sees his brother Esau in the distance. Esau starts running to him. What is that moment like? (laughs) What does that look like? Oh, he's running now. Great. He and his 400 friends. (laughs) 
Verse 4 of 33, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? And he said, these are the children whom God has graciously given me. And he introduced Esau to his nieces and nephews and sisters-in-laws. <laughs> That's an awkward statement. <laughs> and I love, he's, he gives him a gift and Esau says, I don't need your gift. God's already blessed me, but Jacob says, please take it. Now look at verse 10. If I've found favor in your sight, take my present from my hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God. You've received me favorably. See, at this moment, Esau is reminding us of what it's like to come face to face with our God. See, because we are all like Jacob. Esau had every right to be angry with Jacob and probably in their culture had every right to kill him. And so Jacob expected justice to be done. He expected what was rightfully deserved to happen to him. But what happens is Esau runs to him. He puts his arms around his neck, kisses him and weeps and says, brother, you're back. This is exactly what Jesus Christ does for us. A bunch of Jacobs, a bunch of deceivers is the just penalty that we are waiting for, that we deserve. He comes and says, I got that. It's covered. I'm just glad you're back. Sounds like the prodigal son parable if you're familiar with it. And so in this moment, then Jacob says, when I see your face, it's like seeing the face of God. In other words, what just happened to me here, Esau, this shows me who God is and the character of God in my life, which has a side story to it. You and I have an opportunity to be the face of God to somebody. How often do we try to wear the judgment face of God, the self-righteous face of God, the justice face of God, when we could be the compassionate, merciful face of God, the throw my arms around you and kiss you on the neck face of God that says, I'm so happy that you are returning home. And Jacob limps from there the rest of his life, and I would wish to say Jacob's life was perfect after that. It wasn't. He had 12 sons for that <laughs> matter. But in verse 20 of 33, so that Jacob walks with a staff the rest of his life, and he's limping away. And he, he got to a place, he built an altar in verse 20, and he called it El Elohe Israel. God is the God of Israel. Or in other words, this altar is to my God. The first time in scripture, Jacob says, this is now my God. See, his story of his life was a life of wrestling, of fighting, of running, of not recognizing who this God is, saying, you're my grandfather's God. You're my dad's God. Yeah, I know there's promises spoken over my life, but I can do this on my own. I can do it. And when he walks away with a limp, he saw his brother and received true grace. And he said, you are my God. Now I get it. And the last question I have for you today is, what is your limp? Because I think it's significant that the rest of Jacob's life, he limped. See, sometimes we look at the scars in our life, the things we've been through, and we think those are what make us not valuable. Your struggle with addiction, 
a failed relationship, maybe a physical ailment, maybe a failure in your life that you think like, oh, I'm not so significant with this. Those are your limp, that's your scar. That's what's reminding you that it's God's grace and not about you. You know, when I first started in ministry, I was uh, in college and graduated from college. I went down and worked at a pretty large church in, in Orange County while I was in seminary. On Sunday mornings, I would speak to 500 high schoolers in my youth group. And, and so it was like big mega church. The next one was still a really big church and I had a staff working under me. And the church kind of went through some turmoil and we had to downsize and lost some of my staff and the church was losing people. And, and then from there, I went to be a church planter which I just want to tell you, you don't find a lot of affirmation in that when you show up in a borrowed building and you're just hoping there's at least this many people there each week. And I went from there to saying this church plant is, is not healthy for my family, so we quit. We, we essentially turned, closed the doors on it. It was a great church, my favorite one I wor ever worked at. All the issues were mine, so I was really comfortable in it. But we closed the doors. It was a failed church plant. And then after that, I was a volunteer at a church. And I remember sitting in there sometimes and I was leading in this discipleship ministry and I'd sit there thinking like, I wonder if these people know how big a deal I actually am. Like, I've got an education. I could teach as well as that guy. I mean, come on. If only they knew. I was hoping to find affirmation in all these things and thinking that the limp that I had was the thing that was my weakness. When actually the limp that I had was a reminder that it was about God all along and what he wanted to do. And the things I learned in that season shaped me more than any other season of success in my whole life. I believe my leadership and everything that I, I learned in that season shaped me for who I am today. I wouldn't be the same without it. So as we end, I wanna invite the worship team to make their way back up. And for some of you, you need to ask, how, what is your wrestle with God? What is it that you've been searching for? What do you need to surrender today? What is that thing that you're limping around on and what does that teach you? Is it time today to surrender and say, God, you win. I want you to be the story in my life. And we find that this defeat in Jacob's life was actually a magnificent defeat. It was the very thing that brought hope. The very thing that brought him to say, El Elohe Israel. God, you are my God. So as we end our time here, I want to invite you to stand as we sing this last song. And I want to just ask you to let God speak to you however you want. If you want to take a moment to reflect, if you want to join in, however he needs to respond. But let's pray in this moment. God, we thank you that our stories are really written by you. And it's about your work in our lives. And Lord, some of us are wrestling. Some of us are looking for affirmation in a lot of places. Some of us are unwilling to admit that our limp is actually part of our story. So God, would you speak to us today? Would you show us who you really are? And meet us in this place, Lord. We give you this time. Amen.